This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I am your host, Alexandro. We have a lot to cover, so without further ado, I want to introduce you to some illustrious panellists. Unfortunately, none of those were available, so you get this lot instead. Ian Dunt is a columnist at the Eye and co-host of the Chart Topping Origin Story, second episode at uh, yesterday. Chart Went straight topping. to the top of the charts. There's actually a legal N- mandate that people will say chart topping before the name. Not since Britney Spears has this feat <laughs> been achieved. Um, Ian... At the start of this year, Jacob Rees-Mogg put out a call to readers of The Express to curate ideas on Brexit benefits. Uh, More than 2,000 were able to lift their faces from a puddle of their own drool and send some in. (laughs) What sort of things has he chosen for his top 10? You're bringing the kind of impartial, balanced (laughs) mentality to this discussion that I would expect. We're all about the balance here. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I think we should... Admit, as as Remainers, you know, when we got stuff wrong. And, like, look, we there was obviously a sacrifice. <laughs> and the sacrifice was emotional and constitutional and our status in the world and our trading relationships. And 4% um, GDP. Yeah, well, no. So, yeah, there, there was. There was a significant sacrifice. But, but Mog has put together a really strong argument for why it's all going to be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So, number two on his list is... He's going to abolish the EU regulations that restrict vacuum cleaner power to 1,400 watts. <laughs> Is there going to be any limit, do we think, to the sucking water? To the wattage, no. No, there is no limit to how much he can suck. Yeah. Uh, now, further down the list, we have, we're going to abolish, and strap yourself in for this one, abolish the rules around the size of vans that need an operator's license. This has been keeping me up at night. It has, it has. No, I've never been able to get over just the severe Jacob emotional Schmog trauma. Jacob is a size queen, who knew? <laughs> we're going to... Uh, we're going to abol- I quite like this one. We're going to abolish EU limits on electrical power levels of electrically assisted pedal cycles. I'm not sure that British fuse boxes are up to <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg's intervention. It's just going to—they're all going to blow, basically. It's high-flying dreams of British technological accomplishment. So don't worry; it's—it's it's all been worth. No, I'm not sure this is the way to get through an energy crisis. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like he's trolling people. Yeah. <laughs> Next, we have editor and commentator, not to mention sultriest voice in the business, Ros Taylor. <laughs> Hi, Ros. Hello, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> 
The situation around UK airports can only be summarised as scenes. Um, as half-term starts, why is travelling out of the UK so chaotic right now? Yeah, it makes me quite glad in the end that I did not book an away break for this half-term, but, <laughs> um, or relieved, I should say. But according to Grant Shapps, this is because the airlines have screwed up. Um, but the fact is, I think that while the airlines are certainly capable of screwing up, it isn't entirely their fault. Shaps basically says that they should have realised how many people wanted to tra- would want to travel as soon as they got the chance and mm-hmm. factored in that demand and hired people more quickly. But in fact, it's been quite difficult for the airlines. They've had less generous state support than some EU airlines have had, for example. I mean, the whole furlough scheme ended before travel fully started up again. Mm. So you can see the problems there with rehiring. And then there was, if you may recall, something called the Omicron variant, which came along quite recently and mm-hmm. held back hiring plans. And basically, airlines weren't quite sure how that was going to go, understandably. So they didn't take loads of people on. And government rules have changed constantly during the pandemic about travel. It's just been a nightmare, as we know. They just people have been waiting on decisions which are made at short notice and often with very little justification or reasoning. So that on top of the fact that hiring people to work in airports and on planes is more difficult than just hiring a waiter or something. Because, because there's security. Yeah, you, you have to have like tons of background checks to make sure these people aren't going to blow things up. And then there's the expense that the airlines were put to because the government made them carry on flying pretty much empty planes, in fact, often empty planes, in order to keep their slots, mm. which was an environmental disaster as well as expensive for the airlines. Yes because in January, Shaps um, came out and basically mandated them to use up to 70% of their capacity yeah. or they would lose the slots. And now they're complaining that they, they overscheduled, basically. Now they're complaining that those overscheduled flights can't be staffed. Yeah, exactly. So I don't entirely blame the airlines. But, you know, it's good for Big Dog to get the attack in early. <laughs> it's worked for him before. <laughs> Our guest this week is The Guardian's political sketch writer, a collection of which is out now in finely bound book format entitled A Farewell to Calm. John Crace, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be back. <laughs> Speaking of calm, um, you've written recently that after 60 years of suffering from anxiety, breath work has been a game changer for you. Would you recommend it to our Westminster watching listeners? Do you know what? I I would. I mean, I never thought that I would come out as some kind of new age hippie. And I went it's into just breathing, I went, John. I went into the session <laughs> totally sceptical. But my breath was taken away or given back to me. <laughs> I mean, literally, just by breathing, I went into an altered state uh, where I did for a nanosecond forget that I was anxious. Extraordinary. How does it work in practice? Well, I'm not really sure. It's something to do with the circularity of the breath. You don't take in huge gulps and then a large exhalation. You take in a sort of half breath and continue uh, the exhalation as part of the inhale. Um, oh, that's very interesting. We, we're taught that in drama school, you know, to cope with big Shakespeare passages, and we call it lateral breathing. Oh, really? It's probably a well-known technique that has been co-opted by uh, the breath the breath fraternity. <laughs> <laughs> big breath. Big breath. This week on the show, with rumours of more letters going into the 1922 committee, 
Could Graham Brady be holding back an announcement to avoid raining on the Queen's parade? We wargame the outcomes. We're putting up a bunting in the podcast studio ahead of Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee. But how does our panel feel about the nation's nana? And what might follow our second Elizabethan age? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, the head of housekeeping at Checkers was apparently sacked after being accused of inappropriately handling an unidentified personal item of Boris Johnson's. What embarrassing items lurk in our panel's drawers? But first, a quick word from Roz. Next week, on Wednesday the 8th of June, we're live at the Old Market Theatre in Hove on the south coast. The cast is me, Dorian, Alex and Ian, plus special guest Raphael Baer, Guardian columnist and host of Politics on the Couch. Tickets are selling fast at theoldmarket.com and Patreons have a special discount for all live shows. Get yours now and we'll see you there. First this week, the Sue Gray report did not prove to be the death knell for Boris Johnson's leadership that many had hoped, but neither was it the line drawn under it that he wished. Despite some of his own MPs expressing grave concern about Gray's findings, a gaggle of sycophants lined up to tell the public it was time to move on. But if the latest polls are to be believed, the public is about as ready to move on as a recently jilted teenager. Rumours abound this week that the magical number of 54 letters had either reached Graham Brady, chair of the 1922 committee, or it was getting very close. Tory MP Nikki Aiken has even suggested Johnson draw a line under Partygate by submitting a letter of no confidence in himself. Perhaps he could write two letters in the side <laughs> letter. <laughs> Ian, as we record on Wednesday evening, um, what do we think? Is your sense that the dam is about to be breached? Oh, fuck knows. Nobody knows. Nobody's known. And it's, we've been going on about this for months. The whole problem with the whole secretive letter thing is just nobody has any real idea. So for months, we've had people going on there with, you know, the senses that the movement is this and that. And you, kind of, you can't. Those people would have done it without talking about it. Other people would have talked about it and not done it. Some may even say that they've done it and not actually done it. We don't know. They're just, you know. Well, what's the benefit of talking about it and not doing it? MPs are a very weird <laughs> bunch. Okay. Like, don't, don't you underestimate. You're trolling us. Don't, yeah. Don't <laughs> underestimate how fucking weird they are. Look at the state of them. No, anything could be going on. And we just don't know. We don't know where we are with it. I might, you know, if, if you had to put money on it, I suppose you probably would say ne- next week. And you did get a sense, I think, when he, the thing that struck me was the way that the announcement on cost of living just made no fucking difference whatsoever. Mm. You know, like it just, you didn't see any kind of bat. And so, so then you're like, oh, wow, you really are in, you really are in trouble. Yeah. Like that you've got real issues here. And then you got sort of YouGov sort of poll that came out that was just like, you guys are about to get slaughtered out there. Um, and, and the fact that the story just doesn't die. You know, all of a sudden yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, and now we're going to talk about this party in the flat, you know, and they're going to deny, no, they're not going to deny it. But, you know, or are we going to talk about whether he's talked to Sue Gray? You know, it just won't go away. So on that basis, you do think, you know, really, you have to be a very anemic Tory MP to just go like, this can just be allowed to rumble on forever. Is, is Graham Brady obligated to make an announcement regardless of Parliament being in recess and the Jubilee celebrations being underway? Or does he have some discretion as to the timing? Do we know that? No, as far as I know, he can say it whenever the hell he likes. Um, and someone writing to correct me, but I don't think there's no sort of constitution for this sort of stuff. It's mm. just their own sort of internal rules. And once again, we're in that scenario where we are prisoners 
of internal party mechanisms. Certainly, I mean, that's how Johnson got the position of prime minister in the first place, because a bunch of party members decided he was the guy. Now we find ourselves in the same position of having these parties just sort of strangle our, our democratic processes entirely. So, yeah, here we are. We just have to sit and wait until this guy who, you know, each you saw the interview with him the other day. He just looks so unspeakably smug about the whole situation. Mm -hmm. He just absolutely loves being in the center of attention. And that is the guy that everything rests on. We just have to wait and see what he's doing. And if you really like uh, Boris Johnson, presumably he could have received 90 and just going, no, not yet. (laughs) Well, yeah, because it's based based on the same thing that Johnson's protection is, right? Which is, oh, he's he's a gentleman. He's a good old boy, isn't he? So he wouldn't do that. John, um, Carrie Johnson's party in the Downing Street flat, or parties... As we now know, there was an ABBA one and one with the gays, although I do not comprehend how the gays could have been left out of the ABBA party, but (laughs) either by. (laughs) Why weren't they investigated by Sue Gray? Carrie's mentioned just twice in her entire report. We've seen more photos (laughs) in events than that. That's a really good question, and I've honestly got no idea. It is something of a mystery. I mean, we've had Dominic Cummings sort of coming out saying that that they could hear the Carrie party down in the uh, number 10 press office and Mm. that if Sue Gray or the Met had wanted to investigate it, there would have been plenty of people downstairs who could have told uh, told them what was going on. But for some reason, Sue Gray decided... Oh, I can't go anywhere near that. And um, the Met don't seem to have asked any questions about it. And it does seem really extraordinary that Boris Johnson admits there was a party going on there, but he says that he wasn't actually at it and he was only up in the number 10 flat to do a job interview with Henry (laughs) Newman. Um which presumably takes place uh, to the background of the winner takes it all. (laughs) Quite appropriate for a job interview, I think. (laughs) Tory aides have been warned to stay on election footing. Um, Polling predicts that if an election was held tomorrow, they would only hold three of the 88 battleground seats. The latest poll I I saw had Labour 11 points ahead. Um, although that may be an outlier. What's the atmosphere been like in Parliament the last few days, uh, John? How nervous are they? Well, it's it's slightly hard to gather because Parliament's on recess at the moment. So uh, MPs have been away a bit. But one thing that really did strike me uh, last week when Johnson made his statement on the Sue Gray report and that was the sort of lacklustre response by his own MPs. You know, Johnson got up and made his, you know, I was just doing the, the country a favour, you know, speech. And it was a sort of mark of leadership for me to break the rules. I mean, you know, make of that what you will. And it's true that only Tobias Elwood on his own side actually got up and said, look, you're crazy. You're losing us the next election. You can't go along lying like this. And you've got a few kind of people like Michael Fabricant and Andrew Bridgen, sort of old favourites, um, saying, oh, well, he's that's all right by me. But after about 30 minutes of the statement, 
the the Tory benches were about only about a quarter full. Everyone had just gone. There were very few people there who were willing to sort of put their name to Johnson and back him. And I mm. think a lot of MPs are thinking, well, has you know what's the mood of the country? And they will they will ditch him if they think it's to their own advantage. Hmm. I mean, in their defence, they'd caught the matinee, um, <laughs> you know, considering Boris Johnson has now given this same speech several times. Um, Roz, sources have briefed uh, that Sue Gray felt pressured not to name too many senior names in the report, although she does deny it. Um, with junior staff getting fined, 90,000 civil service job cuts on the way and the civil service fast track scheme being ditched as well. Is Johnson's real danger from the lower downs that have to keep his secrets and sort of rubber stamp his misdeeds now? Quite possibly. I mean, these people have the ability to drip feed leaks and pictures to the press as they have been doing. And it's not for nothing that you now see political correspondents routinely providing a confidential way to, mm. for people to file leaks. They are hoping that you know they can all follow, you know, do what Pippa Carra has done so successfully and expose what was going on. But there's also an insatiable appetite for gossip about this government, which does not seem to be abating. And mm. I mean, partly that is a function of Johnson's personality. When you develop a personality cult around yourself and you're happy to do that, it's pretty much inevitable that people are going to want to carry on talking about you and as your star falls to watch it fall with increased fascination. So the scope for this kind of stuff is still very great and the media know that. And as you say, there are presumably soon going to be 90,000 redundant civil servants who have very little to lose if they decide to spill the beans. Mm. Um, last week, Rishi Sunak announced an emer emergency package to support households during the cost of living crisis. And as Ian says, it was a little bit like like that moment in the comedy horror film where the guy comes out with a big bazooka, you know, thinking this will be the thing that slays the beast and that the smoke subsides and the beast is just there staring at him. I mean, they poured a lot of million, a lot of billions uh, into this and the, and the polling just went, yes, end? Yeah, and I suspect that... Sunak knew this, or at least suspected it, and that is why he was trying to put off an announcement on the cost of living as much as possible, and he was undoubtedly, he was hoping to postpone it. But then, of course, there was the Sue Gray report and the more and more pressure to do something about the cost of living crisis, and he had to come out and do something. But paradoxically, I think it was the scale of the support on offer that made people realise how bad things are in this country. Mm. And that is not going to be a good feeling and a good auger for people when they're thinking about the state of this country and the pressures that are on them. To have the government say, things are getting so bad that we're going to give you hundreds and hundreds of pounds each year just to get by... It, it was, you know, it was like that moment in the in the pandemic when the furlough was announced and we all kind of realised, God, this is pretty serious. They're actually, you know, mm -hmm. going to start paying people not to work. It's that bad. I think there's a similar thing. 
And people who haven't necessarily been paying a lot of attention to politics or attention to the cost of living crisis, apart from noticing how prices are going up and that their bills are going up, think, oh, my God, yeah, this is this is not going to get any better anytime soon. Mm. So that, I think, is why the polls didn't improve for the Tories after the statement. Yeah, so one economist on TV point out that to people who had lost the uplift to um, uh, universal credit, the government was taking away £1,040 and giving them £1,050 <laughs> through these schemes. Wow. It's yeah. like, enjoy your extra tenner, <laughs> bitches! I, I, mean, it is, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Um, I mean, this is a, an essentially Sunak's third budget of the year, and we're not yet... Well, we are now in June, and we know that this isn't really going to touch the sides because... People are still going to be feeling broke after this. They're going to be worse off come the autumn than they are now. And there is no way that sort of they can dress that up. And I think that sort of what decided Sunak as much as anything was the fact that people actually liked him when he was giving away money um, during furlough. That was suddenly when he seemed like a credible bet as the successor for Johnson. And so maybe he's decided now that he'll just sort of make up the sums and just start giving away money to buy popularity. I mean, it's, hmm. it's extraordinary. He could always make his wife pay it. Um, <laughs> Ian, what about Lord Guide's letter and Johnson's response? It, it seems to me to be the most passive-aggressive public spat ever committed to paper. Why, why hasn't Guide resigned it's no, it's in a very aggressive linguistic assault if you're in the cabinet office. <laughs> you know, as, as, as you know, and this is this is how it's framed. framed. So, clearly, I mean, what well, the stuff that was said, I don't know whether this is true, but the, the sources that I was reading was sort of uh saying that you know they'd had the conversation, he kept on being really depressed with Johnson's failure to respond to him properly and eventually broke ranks. I mean, to be fair, we question his level of independence, he couldn't have timed it much more damagingly for, for Johnson. Mm. I mean, it really comes at the kind of exact journalistic point where it moves the story on, just like, you know, when there's nothing else to cover. So it was pretty damaging. The, again, the stuff today was like, oh, he's 60, 40. I, I have no idea whether he's going to resign or not. Mm. But at the moment, he's causing serious damage simply by virtue of keeping the story alive, let alone the content of what he's saying. I mean, I have some sympathy, but it is limited because <laughs> mm. I question the wisdom of taking the job in the first place ethics advisor to Boris Johnson um, and does Johnson... not strike me as a sort of job that you come out with much credit <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like acting coach to Gerard <laughs> Butler or <laughs> good taste czar to the Kardashians or something like that you're only going to come out looking like a, a chump right you're still smarting from 300 aren't you uh, totally, have you totally. <laughs> I mean it's been years it's unforgivable you've got to let it it's go it's unforgivable you've got to let it go unforgivable <laughs> Um, what about Johnson's changes to the actual ministerial code? I mean, all this stuff has happened in the last five, six days. I mean, it mm -hmm. seems like a month's worth of events. Um, why is that kind of decision an executive power and not subject to a commons vote? I mean, how can the executive be the ultimate arbiter of its own accountability? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it shouldn't be, uh, but it is. I mean, remember that 
this code didn't even really exist until the 1980s. And until then, it just do what you fucking like, mate. And it wasn't even published until the 90s. You know, it's, and it's only, and then it's called the code once once Blair gets in. I suppose you put it like this: Downing Street is very odd um, internationally because it has tremendous power in a way—a heavily centralized system, very few sort of levers of scrutiny against it. But it's also comparatively weak because it doesn't have a big administration. There's very few staff in it. That's not what it's like in most countries. In most countries, you have a lot more power, a lot more staffing, a lot more administrative uh, sort of muscle underneath mm -hmm. the president or the prime minister. Really, all the prime minister has and the way he can sort of keep things under control is hire and fire. You can reshuffle. And that's what they typically do. And so the ministerial code stays within his, his powers because that's part of his higher, higher and fire. I can't even, apparently can't even say the fucking words anymore. His, his <laughs> higher and fire powers. I'm not going to yeah. say it again because I will fuck it up. And that, by that virtue, I just think they're very loath to, to give up on it, even though anyone, you know, with, with even a GCSE and sort of constitutional subjects, to be able to go, to, oh, obviously, that shouldn't be there. That, that's completely yeah. grotesque. Yeah. But they're loath to give it up. I'm just going to briefly interrupt because something just happened as, as we as we've been recording, which is you're not gonna, you're gonna, you are going to need to strap yourself in for this one. <laughs> yeah. Tobias Elwood, prominent conservative MP, has just written an article, just published in the last few minutes, an article for the House magazine, saying that we can ease the cost of living crisis by rejoining the European single market. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad that I got to see this <laughs> no way, while finally. I was in this room. That is a thing that actually uh, just happened. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Such a relief. I'm so glad someone said it. Yeah. It's like having dinner with someone with snot on their face and no one dares mention it. <laughs> Let's talk about Norway, guys. I've got a. Oh, I've got we're back to the Norway. We're back to the Norway model. Oh Jesus, John. Um, yeah, get, I mean, getting back. Sorry, can I just? Can I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, because we've also had the sort of mum's net, uh, yeah, Boris Johnson mum's net, where yes. basically the, the mums of mum's net have turned against Boris. And, I mean, one of the questions was on the Northern Ireland Protocol, and Boris actually said, yes, I implemented it and I negotiated it, which is the first time he's actually ever taken ownership. But he said, I never expected the EU to implement it in the way that it, we, we, it was negotiated. <laughs> and, I mean, this is absolutely fucking cretinous stuff, isn't it? Imagine, imagine going into a deal, imagining that somebody was going to interpret it completely different from the way it was written. John, um, many, including uh, uh, yesterday, William Hague, um, dismissed today as just a telegraph commentator by Dominic Robb, the man who didn't know how close France is. Oh my God, did you um, say that? Yeah. Uh, they think a vote on Johnson's leadership is now inevitable, but most also think he will win it. Do you think that's a certainty? Um, it depends how many people... Because he's got... I mean, Johnson has been quite astute and has put about 170 of his MPs on, his pay, on the government payroll. So they are, technically speaking obliged to back him and yes he needs 54 letters to trigger a vote of no confidence but i think he only needs 181 votes to win one 
and we know that from Johnson's past behaviour that even if it's close, he's not going anywhere. You know, the, the idea that Johnson might do the de decent thing or feel a note of shame just isn't, <laughs> isn't really part of his... He would need a character transplant for that. <laughs> yes, grace is not something he's known no. for. Um, Ros, not to give him undue credit, but Dominic Cummings thinks Liz Truss would be even worse. Is the lack of a credible alternative <laughs> currently keeping Johnson in place, basically? Well, remarkably, that is actually the, the, the argument that Johnson supporters are making at the moment. And I say remarkably because that is a sign of an incredibly weak leader to surround yourself <laughs> with such pygmies that you cannot imagine them ever being able to take over from you. I mean, good people surround themselves with talented people. And this is self-evidently not what Johnson has done. I mean, like, and that group includes the people making the argument, which is yeah, exactly. what's so extraordinary. They come out and go, who's going to take over? Look at us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just look at us. It's incredible. It's, it's a difficult calculation, though. I mean, on the one hand, you know, the letters are public uh, and the vote is anonymous. So you, that's that's a key distinction. And the calculation is especially difficult because just because of this lack of talent. It's, it's getting harder to imagine the Tories winning the next election, whoever is in charge. So on that basis, do you do a kind of quite Machiavellian but pragmatic thing and let Johnson carry the can for the forthcoming defeat and not contaminate the Tory brand further by putting someone else in charge? Do you just decide, right, we're going to reinvent ourselves in opposition once we're free of this, this idiot? Or do you say, right, uh, we just can't bear it any longer? That That is the calculation which I fear, and what a terrible state we are in for mm. that to be the case, that I fear Tory MPs are making at the moment. Uh, Ian, will Johnson winning a confidence vote be the end of the matter? Does he actually, is there even a chance he might come out of this stronger because he'll be safe for a year that takes him pretty much to the next election? Or does the extent of how wounded he is depend purely on the numbers that that go against him because there's a way of winning this well and there's a way of winning this just isn't there yeah but they can also mess around with them. I mean the rules are the rules the way they are right now I mean they can they can fiddle around with them afterwards there's no sort of constitutional restraint there's no sort of court judgment mm. on any of that I mean if you really 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 want to get rid of someone you can probably do it. Mm. And I just, I don't see any world in which he is stronger. He's not really going to be safe for a whole year. If everything keeps on being fucking dreadful, you don't make sort of MPs just stare at electoral oblivion for a year once they've already shown the capacity for regicide and just have them, you know, sort of hold back. I don't think that will happen. There's no way in which this ends well for him. He's going to survive. I mean, he is going to, uh, probably it'll happen. There'll be a no confidence vote. Probably he'll survive it pretty easily. There's no scenario that follows that in which he's strengthened from the position that he's currently in, let alone the one that he was in a couple of years back. Yeah. And also, I mean, we remember Theresa May. She won a vote of no confidence by about 60% to 40% and was gone within six months. The Tory, as, as Ian says, the Tories can do what they like. The 1922 committee can rewrite the rules on a piece of on the back of an envelope tomorrow if they feel like it. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now it's time for a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. And this week we've got a very different one from our supporter Sebastian. Okay, strap in for this. Loki or Eris Chernobog, Apophis, etc. Pick your chaos deity of choice. Fuck, I love our Steals a single already. blank page from the Book of Fate, within which Verdandi or Ananka, etc. records the fate of all mankind. They give it to you, saying that anything and everything you write on that page will become immediately and irrevocably true. What do you write? Okay, there are rules to this. The page is about the size of an A5 sheet, so it has to be brief. You cannot change anything that has already been recorded, so no Sorry, changing the how past. Much, how many more rules are there? And you <laughs> must write about specific individuals while picturing them in your mind to avoid accidentally affecting the wrong John Smith, the, the wrong Boris Johnson, etc. Did you write these rules, or are these still no, from the email? No, these are still from the email. So, okay, Ian. Um... Okay, this is just no different to going, you can talk to a genie, isn't it? You can talk to a genie. You just make the, make anything happen. I guess so, if you <laughs> have to make everything cheap and pedestrian. Okay, cool. I quite like doing that. Uh, I want Frosted Wheats back. Frosted Wheats haven't been around for fucking ages. They are Rods. fun. No, no, uh, no, no, uh, uh, no, I, I get no. to, I haven't finished my side of A4 yet. It doesn't matter. I haven't finished my side of A4. They've got matter. sugar, so they're quite fun I am writing on my page that I want Ian Dunn <laughs> to, to stop, stop talking. Stop talking. Ross. But, but genuinely. <laughs> it's on my page. <laughs> but genuinely, they, they fill you up all the way through to a lunch. Like in most cereals, they claim to do that, but they fucking don't accomplish it. Frosted Wheats do, and yet, can you find them? Absolutely not. You can't find them anywhere. Can't you just make do with with Cheerios? No. No, they're very specific that these things function and are fun to eat. Number two, um, <laughs> I would like them to release the PlayStation 5 uh, in a, as a handheld console. And number three, and this is very important, I want them to redo Star Wars Episode Nine, <laughs> so that it's less shit and doesn't undo everything that happened in Star Wars Episode Eight. Okay. Those are important issues. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, can I say on the subject of cereals, so I'm very fond of uh, Curiously Cinnamon, even though I still call them Cinnamon Grains. Um, and there's now Curiously Cinnamon Churros, it's like mini churros. Mm, they're disgusting. I tried them. In, in yeah. the form of a cereal. Yeah, I yeah. was pressured into buying them and I tried them. Yeah. Never again. Wait, okay. that's crazy though. Ross. Churros... As, so you put the milk on the churros. <laughs> I, I don't eat cereal with milk. Um, I don't really eat cereal, cereal at all. I consider this it a child's This isn't about cereal. <laughs> the email food. had nothing to do with cereals. Okay, Roz, what are you writing on your page? I consider it a child's food. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Also, you take something pleasantly crispy and you drown it in milk. I, I don't even like drinking milk. <laughs> and you so, have a chance to change the world. Stop well, talking about Well, he didn't bloody cereal. take it, did he? <laughs> I was very confused by this question. I can even presume the author went to, you know, studied Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic or something, or else there's some other fantasy thing with which I'm naturally unfamiliar going on. Anyway, um, yeah, I would, I would probably uh, say if we're thinking about someone, and I thought we had to think about someone rather than about a cereal but let's move on from that but Mark Mark Zuckerberg decides to pull the plug on Facebook and Instagram just because I bloody hate Instagram it's oh, a wow. force for evil and hands all the existing profits that he's made to public sector broadcasting well, well, that would be my that's answer. quite a biggie yeah, yeah. That's quite a piggy. Yeah, well, and, I didn't want to, you know, I could have done something about cereal, and but yet, I decided not to. And yet all I can think is whether <laughs> Cinnamon Graham would count as a person so that, so that he could be part of it. No Sorry, one said it had John, to be a person. John, what's yours? What, what oh, are you God. changing about the world in one sentence? Um, I, I'm afraid I'm going to be equally trivial. I would have Spurs winning the Premier League. For the first time since 19... Well, first time ever and first time since they won the first division since 1961. As a fellow Spurs fan, A, I totally approve and B, I am depressed by the idea that you have to write it on some magical page for it ever to happen. So I'm in two minds about it. Uh, And that's but your emails. None of our panellists decided to say lower the Earth's temperature by by one and a half degree or anything like that. That's why we've called it but your emails because of days days like this. Now, apparently it's quite a big week for the Queen, according to her Wikipedia page, which I skimmed in preparation for this item. What a roller coaster! highly recommend. Um, she's marking her Platinum Jubilee as stonking 70 years on the throne. 12 million people are expected to attend street parties during a long bang holiday weekend, which is actually Thursday to Sunday. Why? Anyone? Anyone? No. <laughs> Celebratory events. <laughs> it doesn't seem that big. Why is it Thursday to Sunday? It's, it's always it the Monday after. Because they could only book yes, the bunting. From a, that was the only time they could book the bunting, I think. <laughs> uh, there's enough bank holidays on Mondays. If they had another one, basically, you know, it would be impossible to do anything else on a Monday regularly. So yeah, they okay, wanted to avoid right. that. Fair enough. <laughs> Celebratory events so far have included projecting Elizabeth's face on Stonehenge, the only thing in the country older than her, and a special Colin the Caterpillar. <laughs> <laughs> with a corgi's face. What fun. Um, Roz, is... <laughs> Roz, is Elizabeth distinct from the royal family as an entity? She's been queen for so long that she has made the role her own, as it were. She has shown herself resilient and able to channel public feeling for decades. Can you hate the royal family as a concept, but like her as head of state? Yeah, she's entirely distinct from the rest. I mean, she's managed to not embarrass herself in the way that, frankly, almost every other member of the royal family has managed to do, with the possible exception of Kate. I I would question her ability to channel public feeling. I don't think she's very good at that. I think it's actually really important that she doesn't try to do it. Mm. There was, of course, that whole discourse around this when Diana died and it was thought that the palace wasn't showing enough grief and it wasn't reflecting the mood of the nation and then she came out and looked at the flowers and apparently that was showing that she had understood the public mood. 
But it's really that she embodies certain British traits, mm. I think, or certain traits that we like to associate with Britishness, a sort of reticence, a politeness, an ability to suppress deep feeling, which I think is absolutely crucial to Britishness <laughs> over the long term. Yes, I think channel feeling, my bad, was the wrong phrase. She has an ability to absorb feeling and negate it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like a black hole. Yeah, like a black hole. And... You know, one of the things that she's very perceptib- uh, perceptively said about herself, I think, is that I have to be seen to be believed, which, of course, has a double meaning. But when you think about it, it's very instructive because it shows the importance of seeing her rather than hearing her. Most of us don't really know what the Queen sounds like anymore. Mm. Um, we don't really hear her voice at all. And... The seeing is terribly important. It's one of the reasons, I think, why she does not use a wheelchair now, though clearly if she wants to attend a lot of events now, she would need to use a wheelchair Mm. because she fears the symbolism that that would bring. And I speak, you know, as as somebody who's very conscious of the negative associations of wheelchairs with with disability as someone who might have to use one themselves in the future. And it is something that she is desperate to avoid because that would associate her physical presence with decline. Mm. And she knows how much her physical presence reflects how Britain wants to feel about itself. So maybe decline would be a perfect metaphor. Um, Ian, you're a massive fan, aren't you? You're, yeah, a, you're a proper member of the Lizzie Massive. I've been walking into this debate like a man going to his public execution. You, you is... write today <laughs> that the monarchy is working just fine. Rather, it's, an, it's our national response to it that's breaking. What do you mean by that? Oh, fuck. Um, okay, right. So... Yeah. <laughs> Well, you wrote it, mate. Yeah, no, it's just having this debate. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I find these royal occasions extremely irritating. Um, it's the same for royal weddings, really. Just that, on the one hand, you have the sort of blithering, obsequious servitude of the sort of pro-royalist sort of newspapers. And on the other, you have the kind of impotent anger of Republican sort of forces, among which I include pretty much every single friend I have, who are just sort of catastrophically upset with the fact that nothing changes and it would always be there and the public support it. And I kind of think, and I base this on absolutely nothing at all, that most people in the country and don't actually like, even though they say they support the monarchy, they don't actually like those kind of headlines and, and the sort of theatre around it. They mm. just sort of think like, this all just seems perfectly fine. She's taking it quite seriously. She, you know, she's, she's fulfilling the duty as it's there. I look around me, I see Downing Street, I see the Met Police, I see Parliament, I see all these, you know, institutions that don't work and aren't fulfilling the responsibilities. And she's taking it seriously and it does work. So you just think, okay, so that's fine. So, so this so bit, of all the things to fix, she's not the urgent one, basically. Apt, like, of oh. course it is all terribly, terribly silly. You know, the other day we found out what our laws were just after they drove a crown in a special crown car, okay, back to a palace. And I recognise that that is quite, quite mad. Okay, but of course you look around this country you think that that, that is a thing we're going to start sort of fretting, but I just can't, I don't have it in me to... to I, I am puzzled, though, as to how any sort of hereditary position fits within notions of egalitarianism that are part of liberalism, which you're a great big fan of. I'm a massive fan. Uh, I mean, well, this is two, the definition two, of inequalities. There's, no, there's two things there. I mean, the first one is the liberalism's relationship with uh, the concept of egalitarianism 
is very mixed. <laughs> I don't know if any if you've ever spotted that, and it has been historically and is now. So you um, like libertarianism, but don't quite like egalitarianism. Is that no, no, it's that it's that obviously when you're talking about how you manage human freedom, mm. very quickly you start talking about the level of equality that is entailed by right, that. Right, okay? Right. And, okay, and that goes in various ways. <laughs> now the second part to that is the history of liberalism has always been singularly ambivalent about the question of republic or monarchy. I mean, one of the first things liberalism did when it was born in the English Civil War was kill the king, okay? What's the, what's the thing that happens immediately afterwards when liberalism sort of takes hold around parliament it, during the Glorious Revolution is you get a different king yeah, in and he yeah, replaces yeah, okay. one of them. Then you kill the French one. Then you have someone like Constant, who's Con Benjamin Constant in France is throwing in his lot with the Republicans, throwing in his lot with various kings. No one really cares because the mechanism is sort of irrelevant to liberals as long as what you have is a vehicle there that will establish human freedom, individual freedom. The, throughout its history, it's never been that fascinated by the question of royalty. Mm, OK, John, um, I've seen The Crown. Um, so I know that during these milestones, while the country celebrates behind the scene, it's all dramatic music and tense dialogue <laughs> and some Eugene O'Neill-like family drama going on. What is it likely to be this time? Prince, Prince Andrew's fall from grace? Um, evil Meghan Markle stealing Harry from the family? Something else altogether that we don't even know about? R write, write for me the script for the Crown series... 17 that sort of covers <laughs> covers this platinum jubilee what's going on behind the well, scenes i think we're writing her off a bit too quickly i i wouldn't be at all surprised if she was sort of on the balcony for her 75th jubilee i don't know what the 75th actually is titanium i don't titanium know gets into after platinum. That, that's her knees i think <laughs> that's um yeah I mean, I, I think everyone is going to be kind of, there's going to be a lot of focus on Harry and Meghan, you know, and there will be Piers Morgan sort of on talk TV devoting hours to whether Harry and Meghan have some way dissed their granny and have upstaged her somehow. And then we've got Justin Welby, uh, who won't be there because he's got COVID and pneumonia, but has made an unhelpful intervention saying that Prince Andrew is ripe for forgiveness, which, I mean, I find curious, as he hasn't actually admitted he's done anything wrong. Um, yes, it's a strange notion of confession. Yeah. Um, um, forgive me, Father, for I have done nothing well, wrong. I just can't sweat. Yeah, exactly. I'm sort of with Ian. I, I mean, I've got nothing against the Queen, sort of symbolically, um, you know, as a sort of head of state. Though when... I, I'm slightly more uncomfortable when, when people call her the mother of the nation because she's been a spectacularly poor parent to her own children. You know, and I and it does seem to be that even sort of royalists and sort of starch sort of monarchists are suggesting that when the Queen does eventually die, that the monarchy will have to change in the sense mm. that you know, what's coming next isn't nearly as good as what's there now. Hmm. On that note, can I ask the whole panel one final quick question? To what extent do you think monarchism is bound to the person that is Elizabeth II? Are people loyal to a monarch or the monarch as she's now? How bumpy a ride is the institution likely to face when Charles takes over? Uh, I think an incredibly bumpy ride. I think we now have had, obviously, Elizabeth 
on the throne for so long that it is very hard for Britons to imagine anyone else. And I think mm. it will precipitate a lot of national crisis and soul-searching when he does take over. So it's a curious thing. I, th I think the Platinum Jubilee has become, in a way, a bit of a kitsch-fest. And mm. we ha we're not really thinking... It's not an excuse to think seriously about the country or anything much. It's actually... It, I, I find it quite quite harmless in a way as a Republican. It's you know, people putting cutouts of the Queen in their windows and all this sort of thing and a ton of bunting. And, you know, bunting is is, is it just, it's, it's the people who are slightly embarrassed about some of the things Britain has done and they would never put a whole flag out but they, because that would be too dramatic a gesture. But bunting is just fine. It's like patriotism. It's like patriotism light. It's just, and, yeah. and it's much less serious this time, I feel, than it was uh, on the Golden Jubilee, when there was much less self-consciousness about the way people are celebrating. Mm. Mm. How about you, Ian? What do you think? No, I think that'll be fine. I mean, Ch Charles will come in. People don't like him now, but it will be, as Ros is sort of saying, but a, but a sort of flip version of it, of people will be very, very emotional. Mm. And that emotion, I think, will be directed towards him and a desire for him to... As the person who has He's the new king, you know. Yeah. Yes, no, but also yeah, yeah. as the new king. So, you know, you're going to need yeah. someone in that space and he will be there. They'll, be, they'll, they'll have a long sort of societal memory of him, you know. And, and I think that ultimately when he's in that position, he's not going to be sitting around, you know, writing stuff about how he likes talking to plants mm. and, you know, writing protest letters about buildings. He's going to do the... He's going to do what the palace is saying you've got to do right now. What about you, John? Um, it strikes me that the press don't seem to have completely made up their mind about Charles. No, well, I think, the, I mean, the press like to write their own versions of the, of the monarchy, you know, uh, mm. almost rewrite it on a daily basis. And I suspect that, you know, when Charles does take over, there will be a great deal of rewriting and many of the sort of Nicholas Witchells and Robert Hardmans who who are paid to you know, observe the monarchy at close up for a living, who have spent the last sort of 10 years saying that Charles isn't quite right, will suddenly find a way of, uh, that Charles is actually the man fulfilling his destiny in some way. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Roz, what's yours? The uh, Institute of Fiscal Studies, uh, stay with me here, did an actually fascinating bit of work uh, tracking people who were born in 1952 to continue the regal hmm? theme. How are they doing today? And unsurprisingly, they found that actually they've done pretty well. 85% of them own their own home. One in seven actually have a second home. Hmm. One in seven. So it's a, it's a lucky generation, put it that way. Yeah, OK. I, I like that. Ian, what's yours? Well, you may remember that um, the police, uh, as we were talking about earlier, have a very light-touch attitude to whether they're going to investigate, let alone pursue the prime minister over parties in his flat for breaking mm -hmm. lockdown rules. That is not the attitude that they have to four people for allegedly breaking COVID lockdown rules at the vigil for Sarah Everard. Yeah who are now being pursued in the courts over rule-breaking in a very secretive form of justice that they're being put through. And so, look, I can't comprehend 
that there is an institution, just strip it out from it being the Met, that is just so utterly morally broken that it ends up in the places that it ends up with mm. over and over and over again. And it takes us right back to how they treated that protest, that vigil in the first place. And now to see them now, after being so hands off with the PM, decide that they're going to pursue hard. You just think like, I'm sorry. There's absolutely no excuse for it anymore, for, for Labour not to have it front and centre of the things that they're trying to do. The Met is evidently in need of urgent root and branch reform. It has to be happening now because it is utterly broken as an organisation. Yeah, having spent some time studying the Daniel Morgan report, I would echo that. Um, John, how about you? Well, I mean, to go back to our last story about the green, we haven't talked about the weather. Um Yes. Um, and it's looking what very much as if the weather is Republican because it's down on Saturday and Sunday when most people are supposed to be having uh, either queuing in the mall to watch the pageant or to be having a street party. Um, hmm. So I, I think the Queen needs to have a word with the weather. It's character forming, I say. Um my story is that the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, have published figures today on long COVID. Uh, two million people in Britain um, have long COVID symptoms. That is, I think, 4% of the population. There's a shocking lack of provision or coordination, and this is just a massive, massive health um, issue that's just sitting there waiting to explode. I'm, I'm with you there because be. I've got long COVID. Um, oh, well, I, I, I get completely wiped out very easily, often need a nap in the afternoon. And I still haven't, I, I got COVID in February and I still haven't got my taste back. Oh, that's terrible. I'm so yeah. sorry yeah. to hear that, well, John. And that's the show. My thanks to Roz. Thank you. To Ian. Thank you very much. And to our guest, John Crace. Thank you very much, Alex, Ros and Ian. Stay tuned for our extra bit exclusive for patrons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. Hello and major thanks from me to Richard V, Will, Jeremy O'Donoghue, Ruth Needham, Sinead Walsh, Russell Frost, Dennis Roberts, James Lamb, Ian Griffiths and Nick Payne. Massive thanks from me and greetings to Graham Sheridan, Sarah Morris, if that's my friend in Madrid. Thank you so much, Sarah. Mike Mead, Scotia Scoot, Anita Pierce, Connor Masters Kelly, Carlos, Una Walsh, Matt Kenny and Pete Williams. And finally, hello and a big thank you from me to Peter Harrison, Jay Hopkins, Justin Forster, Annette Panzera, Helen Clark, Adrian Henderson, Kieran Tui. Harry Lyndon Evans, Mario Cavalli, and Shuin Gallagher. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andre, with Ian Dunt and Ros Taylor. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn, the producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovic, group editor is Andrew Harrison, lead producer Jacob Jarvis, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God What Now Extra Bit, exclusive for Patreon backers. 
Amid the fallout from Partygate and reports of staff being treated poorly, it's been revealed that the head housekeeper at Checkers quit. In 2020, signing a non-disclosure agreement on her way out, she faced a disciplinary hearing after being accused of the, and I quote, inappropriate handling of a personal item belonging to Boris Johnson. The nature of the item is not known. All we know is that it was found in his bathroom and the, the housekeeper was cleared of doing what she was accused of. So this week we're asking, first of all, what the fuck could the item have been? <laughs> and then what sensitive items have we left lying around for unsuspecting cleaners, hotel staff, guests or flatmates to find? Or what items would we definitely not want them to find? Ian. I presume it was just one of his children. <laughs> <laughs> Just left it in the bathroom. Absent-mindedly. And how did she mishandle the child? Picked it up by its ankles. I don't fucking Gave know. it affection. Called it by its That was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You also get our weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.